The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, everyone, and welcome to our throwback episode. In our throwback episodes, we are reintroducing you to some of our most popular episodes. This is great for new listeners who want to learn more about the work we've done in the past, and it's a great refresher if you've been a listener for a long time. Enjoy. Zabine, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Kwame. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm a huge fan of the show. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's great to have you. How about we start off by telling the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So I am the managing director of the Schreiner Negotiation Institute's North American Division. I sit out of our office here in New York City, and I look after all of our education, management consulting, our events, and our insights and research division here out of my office. And I look after a lot of our major accounts and global strategic initiatives all over the world. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, Shriner is an incredible organization. And also, before you started working at Shriner, what was it that you did? How, how did you get to this point? Oh, man. So I could I could tell you stories about my life. But uh, in a nutshell, you know, I'm uh, I'm born and raised here in New York. And I started my career many, many moons ago on Wall Street. I was an investment banker and uh, on the dark side, uh, we like to say <laughs> I was I was there on the dark side. And I spent many years in investment banking. I worked on M&A, joint ventures, did a lot of IPO work, really booming stuff. And then I moved into consulting. And that's where I really found my calling in alternative dispute resolution, strategic acquisition. My specialty was in uh, innovation. And then I spent a lot of years doing that. And uh, the financial crisis hit and the opportunity came for me to go abroad. And so I spent the last eight years in Dubai, where I was an advisor to the prime minister's office. I did a lot of mediation. I did a lot of ADR for corporate clients. And then it was time for me to come back home. And I found the Schreiner Institute and it seemed an incredible and perfect fit. And and it was and it is. And here I am today sitting with you talking negotiations. I love it. This is great. And and that is that background is incredible and is exactly why we're having you on the show today. And uh, the three topics that you outlined are really exciting. The, the first one is the difference between selling and negotiation, understanding that. Then we move on to why we reject compromise. And then the last one is the importance of walking away when appropriate. So this is going to be great. But let's start off with the, with the first one. So tell us about the difference between selling and negotiating. Yeah, so this is really important because I think many of us don't either don't know there is a difference or don't recognize how it's different if we do recognize that it's not exactly the same. So when we're selling, this is when we are teaching our customers, our clients, and uh, you know about our value, our U.S our unique features, our benefits. We're asking all these questions. We're building the relationship. We're talking about their pain points and talking about how we can solve their problems. This is the sales process, right? We know this. We're familiar with this. When we move into a negotiation, though, it's a very different ball game. When, you, when you're negotiating with someone, you're not necessarily talking about the value that you're adding. You're not talking about your features, your benefits. When you start talking about 
sales point in a negotiation, you end up justifying, you look defensive and you open yourself up to an attack. So when you're, when you're selling, you're making arguments, why you're better, why you're good, why you're different, why they need you. When you're negotiating, you're not making arguments, you're making demands. The goal of a negotiation is to come to an agreement. The goal of a sale is to get your client to accept the value that you have. And then you enter the negotiations so you can discuss the terms under which they get to accept that value from you. So it's a very different mindset. You have to take off your sales hat and put on your negotiation hat. And a good salesperson will groom that client for the negotiation that's upcoming, managing expectations, leading the way, setting the tone, and telling them that this is the next step. We now have to negotiate. Zabine, this is expert level stuff. This is fantastic. And I think it's, like you said, it's something that is so subtle that I think a lot of people miss it, but it's critical to effective negotiation. And so for people who are in that position where they do have to have a bit of a sales and marketing approach, at least initially, to build that relationship, at what point would you say there is a shift in the relationship where we start to move from selling to negotiating? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I get that question a lot. I would say a few things. First of all, a lot of people ask me, when do I know when a negotiation begins? And I tell them it begins when you tell your client it's time to negotiate. Sometimes we're afraid to even say the word negotiate. And I don't know why. It's okay for you to tell your client, okay, we've agreed that this is the best solution for you. Now let's discuss the terms of our partnership. Let's begin the negotiation. Now, when I talk about having to groom your clients, many times I see a lot of people, they enter a negotiation and treat it as an extension of selling. So they're negotiating two, three, four, five different kinds of products or solutions, and that's not really helping anybody. So in the sales process, it's really up to you to tell the client, I'm the expert. I know what you need. Let's work together to find the solution that best fits what you require. And once that's agreed between yourself and your client, you then say, all right, this is great. Let's now negotiate the terms of our partnership. That's really interesting. And so with regard to the options that you discussed, so can you clarify that a little bit more? So are you saying that when you go into the negotiation, you are not necessarily going in with options? Or are you saying that you want to narrow the options through the sales process and then it creates a more focused discussion when it's time to negotiate? Yeah, that's a good question. So let's take it in the lens of, for example, if you're going to buy a car at the car dealership, let's say you go to the Toyota dealership. There's a Toyota Camry, there's a Toyota Corolla, there's a Toyota Land Cruiser. When you go to sit down with your sales manager and the finance manager, you want to have decided before you sit down with them, which one of the three models of car you want to buy, right? And then when you sit with them, you then discuss the different configurations or the options available to you 
of the one vehicle that you chose. That's what you want to do. But you don't want to go into a negotiation with three different cars, so to speak, where your clients are then cherry picking and kind of picking off things they do and do not want. And then you're forced to mix and match solutions and it becomes a very complicated negotiation and not one in which you yourself are going to be able to come out as successful as you would hope. So it's important to manage expectations, decide with your client what it is exactly you are planning to negotiate, and then you enter the negotiation on that one solution. And you can have multiple options or multiple configurations, but you have to have a set topic of negotiation. I love this point. And I think that brings a lot of clarity to that transition and to the subsequent discussion for both parties. Because what studies have shown repeatedly in psychology is that you run into the paradox of choice, where if you have too many options, it leads people to simply not make a choice. <laughs> They're overwhelmed by the decision-making process. And by narrowing the options available, I think you're making it more likely for somebody to actually make a decision and purchase. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what's the goal, right? The goal is not only to just close a deal, but the goal is to close a deal as effectively and as efficiently as possible. Why should I take six months to close a deal if I can close it in one? Why should I lose 10% by giving a 10% discount when I could only give away maybe three or 4%? So the goal should not be closing a deal only. That for me is always a given. It's closing it effectively and closing it efficiently. And that's up to me to make that happen. Many times my clients are waiting for me to tell them what's next and what needs to be done. So it's up to me to do that. And for you, is there ever a time when you would begin the negotiation process and then run into something that makes you say, listen, actually, I need to back up a little bit and go back into sales mode and then re-enter the negotiation focused on a different issue? Well, as you know, Kwame, I am like the greatest salesperson in the world. So <laughs> that never happens to me. But no, but but all, all joking aside, you know, people ask me all the time, Sabine, what if you're in the negotiation and it becomes apparent that maybe the value hasn't been sold, right? Because what I tell them is you sell the value in the sales process. In negotiations is when you determine the terms under which they accept that value from you. So I've convinced you that this car that I have to sell you is the greatest car. It's going to help you. It's going to solve all your problems. It gives the right message. It's exactly what you've been working for. Now that I'm in the negotiation, I have to convince you that the price the payment terms, the warranty, all of those things are things that you need to accept. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. For me, there are a few things that I say. Number one, if they're trying to tell you, right, that, or if they're trying to convince you that the value hasn't been sold, more often than not, it's a tactic. If the value hasn't been sold, they wouldn't be sitting there with you trying to understand how they can get this product or service from you, right? So that's number one. The value's been sold because they're sitting there at the table with you. Number two, it's more often than not a tactic to push you into a defensive position. The second you start then justifying why your product is so great is the second you open yourself up to attack. Well, to be in your car is great, but I can go to Honda or I can go to Mazda or I can go to Ford and they got this and they got this offer and that deal. You know, these are not things that I need to be discussing in a negotiation. We talked about this in the sales process. That being said, today we see many times there are multiple teams involved in a negotiation. And sometimes there are people that become involved that maybe haven't been so involved in the sales process. So how do I deal with those people? Usually what I would do is call for a break. I would have a salesperson or have a sales department or a sales discussion outside of the negotiation and then resume the negotiations afterwards. But I will never, ever mix the two, ever. This is really great. And I think there are two really cool parts that I, I want to highlight. So the first one, I see the value now kind of following up on the conversation we had with Matthias about having multiple people play different roles in the negotiation. Because in mm -hmm. that example, you're saying, well, I'm the negotiator. If you need to talk to a salesperson again, we'll, we'll bring Steve in. <laughs> Steve will talk to you about, yeah. uh, about these options. Come to me when you're ready. And that it's an easier transition if you have multiple people on your team. Team. And now, let's say, hypothetically, going back to what you said earlier, with if the person is in a situation where they are using that as a tactic and you don't have a Steve, <laughs> you might be playing the role of salesperson and negotiator. What do you do to push back on that tactic so you don't end up having a feeling forced to qualify yourself or your product? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. Now, the, the first thing that I will tell you is, you know, our institute, we follow the FBI model of negotiations when it comes to team structure. That means we have a negotiator, we have a commander, we have a decision maker, and we have an expert. And when we sit at the negotiation table, it's a negotiator, a commander, and an expert. And we always say that the negotiator should never be the account manager for that client. It should never be the salesperson that owns the relationship because they're too close to it. They have too much leverage on them. And more often than not, for a lot of these sales guys, you know, they've gone native, right? Where they are so empathetic that they can't negotiate effectively, which is why the team structure is so important. What do you do though? 
for example, when you don't have the luxury of a team? What do you do when you don't have a commander, when you don't have somebody to kind of pass the baton to? There's a few things that you can do. And, and I found myself in this situation many, many times, and it wasn't ideal. I find that during this time, it's important to, number one, be super super prepared. So I have in my mind before I've even entered the negotiation, mapped out 10 possible ways this is going to end. I have all my demands, all my offers. I have my agenda. I have my fish. I know exactly what tactics I'm going to use. I've played it out in my mind a million times. So preparation is key. The second thing is taking extensive notes and summarizing frequently. And summarizing is super important because it helps me get clarification and it also allows me a few moments to pause and take a break to think about what was said and, and what was shared while I write notes down. And, and those are two things that I think have really helped me in my negotiations when I found that I had no option except uh, to go in by myself. But I will say, you know, the negotiations, Kwame, that we support as an institute are not your day-to-day -day kind of everyday negotiations. We support the most difficult negotiations. And, you know, at that level of negotiations, we do have often the luxury of at least a little time. And, and during that time, we prepare extensively and part of our preparation is putting together a team because it is absolutely critical. Right. Oh man, I love this. And I could, we might need to have you back just to discuss this specific topic because it's so rich with information and your background in it obviously is, uh, is very extensive. So that will be the next time you come on. So I guess sure. listeners just know Zabine will be back. <laughs> to, to go deeper on this. So while we, um, just for the sake of time, let's move on to the second point on rejecting compromise. Zabine, I thought negotiation was all about compromise. What? What is that? No, negotiation is about coming to an agreement. And there have been very few times in my life where I have ever agreed to a compromise. So let me tell you a little bit about compromise. Compromise is where everybody is unhappy, okay? That's what compromise is. So, you know, compromise is when I say, Kwame, do you have $10? And you say, Sabine, out of the goodness of my heart, I have this $10. I do. Take it. And I take it from you. I look at your $10 and I say, you know what, Kwame? I really like to look at your $10. I'm going to keep it. And you freak out. My $10, Sabine, I never thought you were dishonest. I never took you for a crook. And I say, all right, Kwame, in the spirit of compromise, how about you keep five and I keep five? Fair? Is that fair, Kwame? I, I don't that's feel not like that's fair. fair. It's not fair, right? But that's compromise. It's where there is always going to be a winner and there is always going to be a loser, but you have sugar-coated it. And nobody walks away from compromise happy. And I'll tell you, at the level that we are negotiating at, nobody is coming to the table and sitting across from me thinking, let me make sure Zabine walks away happy. Nobody cares. Everybody is in it to win it. So when there is a winner, there is a loser. And the compromise approach simply doesn't work at this level of negotiation. It's not, it's, it's not applicable. There is a winner. There is a loser all the time. This is a really great point. And one of our guests who's coming up, he talks, he made a post, Alan Sang, about compromise and the myth of win-win. Because 
if you are in a negotiation and you think that this is a win-win negotiation, but you go up against somebody who believes in win-lose negotiation, you will be the loser <laughs> in that negotiation. Yeah. And so that's right. For people who like to be collaborative, how do they negotiate effectively, reject compromise, but still maintain a solid relationship with the other side? Oh, Kwame, you're, you're asking me the really hard questions today. So that's a really good question. So I get asked this all the time too, Zabine, what you are saying sounds really mean and really aggressive, right? This is what I get. It sounds super hardball, right? I'm not comfortable because I'm relationship oriented. So to that, what I always say, you don't have to be aggressive. You don't have to be mean. You don't have to be unethical and you don't have to be nasty to play hardball, to play win-lose, right? You, you can always, we are always nice, friendly, approachable, relationship-oriented, partnership-oriented. But playing hardball means you don't compromise on the things you came to the table to achieve. So the things that are important to me, under no circumstance am I going to give those things away. There are other things that I can trade. There are other amends that I am willing to make. But the things that are important to me, the non-negotiables, I will never give those up. So being tough, people, people often mistakenly believe that being tough in a negotiation harms the relationship with the client, but that's not true. It's when you don't protect yourself is when you're actually harming your relationship with the client because you teach them how to treat you. And when you set the precedent that with a little pressure and with a little cajoling, you're just going to roll over and concede, you are going to lose every single time. This is great. This is really great. And so let, let me push you into potential controversy. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on the philosophy of the probably one of the most popular negotiation books, Getting to Yes? So there is a time and there is a place for compromise and collaboration, right? Certainly, you know, there, there is a value to that. And it is important. Even in the sales process, it's important. On your day-to-day -day negotiations, your, your very operational, you know, discussions that you're having, that's fine. That's important. But what about when you're at this level of negotiations where you're sitting across from somebody that doesn't care about value and doesn't care about your relationship or your history or your heritage or your brand? They care about the bottom line. Can you give me 20% discount? Yes or no. It doesn't matter who you know. It doesn't matter what your logo is. It doesn't matter how long we've been working together. We see this a lot with procurement departments. We see this a lot with third-party negotiators. They don't care about your relationship. How do you negotiate with people like that? Do you approach it with win-win? You can. You absolutely can. You can only negotiate win-win if the person across from you is also negotiating win-win. And that being said, just because I go to the table playing playing to win doesn't mean that I don't make my counterpart feel like they are winning also. It's super important that you always protect your counterpart's face. They have to feel good about the negotiation. They have to feel good about the deal that they are going to accept or they're not going to. I love this. This is great. And the reason I ask is because I, I, I think... Uh, for a lot of people, the first book they read on negotiation is is getting to yes. 
And my first time reading it, I thought it was great. But then as a practicing attorney, <laughs> I was I right. the real world and I realized, hey, I'm starting to fall out of love with this because I think a lot of times when people say I'm a collaborative negotiator, I'm a win-win negotiator, no matter what, because there's always a way for us to get a good deal for both parties. It is almost borderline, almost like a religious belief where this, mm -hmm. no matter what, this is what I believe. and then. You're confronted with a situation and you hold true to that, but it doesn't work. Then what? You, you're, you're kind of left with nothing. So I, I love this. And I love how you are able to say, listen, we're still, going to be, we're still going to be respectful. We're going to be polite and everything. And we're going to approach this in a way that allows the other party to save face, but I'm not going to concede on what I need. And so how do you do that in a way that allows the other party to save face? Oh, that's a great question. So, you know, what I always do is over the course of the negotiation, I, I call it giving them the words, right? I give them the words and we call it writing their victory speech. You have to write their victory speech. So what does that mean? When I go back after a deal, I have to justify to my stakeholders why I accepted the agreement that I did, why I allowed for this agreement to be on the table, right? I have to justify my actions. So does my counterpart. They have to go back and explain to their stakeholders, their decision makers, why they agreed to this deal that I put on the table. I have to give them the word. So you have to write their victory speech is what we say so that they know that they have the confidence and they have the backup and the reasoning that they can take back to their stakeholders and say, listen, this is why I agreed. This is beautiful. I love this. Yes, this is great. And we're playing such a high stakes game. And, and what we're seeing yeah. here is that, as they say, there are levels to this game. And at this high level of negotiation, when you're working with big deals with other outside organizations, it is a win-win type of thing. The collaborative negotiation works best internally when you are literally on the same team. That's where it works. But in this type of negotiation, you're, you're playing for keeps, as they say. So it's important to reject compromise. And then, of course... Sometimes when you're having this advanced game of chess with negotiation here, sometimes it doesn't work out. And so this leads easily or seamlessly into number three, which is the importance of walking away. Uh, can you tell us about that too? Yeah. So walking away is, is both my most favorite and least favorite thing to do, but it is a necessary evil. And nine out of 10 people either never walk away or don't believe in walking away for the simple reason that they feel walking away harms the client relationship. So in their mind, walking away means walking away from the client's relationship, but that's not what it is. You're just walking away from this discussion, this negotiation at hand. It sends a clear signal that you have done everything that you could do and that you are serious about protecting your non-negotiable. And it goes back to what I was talking about earlier, that you teach your clients how to treat you. If they see that you never walk away, or if they see that you're just bluffing, you're not serious about walking away, they will never, ever, ever come to heal, right? They will, they will know that no matter what, Sabine's going to sit at this table and she's going to take our abuse. But I have to draw a line at some point to say, guys, you know, in the spirit of partnership, I have done everything that I could do. This is what I've done, number one, two, and three. 
it seems though that we were just going to have to agree to disagree here and we just cannot come to an agreement under the current circumstances and I will have to get up and I will have to leave and the negotiation ends. It's not about walking away from the client. You know, I can have a great relationship with my client, but they know that, you know what, this discussion was not fruitful. And then we have another discussion. We open another negotiation, but there's nothing wrong in walking away. This is great. And I think the parallels to just everyday relationships, relationships with your friends, family, romantic relationships, it, it all applies. If you are not willing to stand up for yourself and walk away from a bad deal, then you put yourself in a position where people are going to take you for granted. You, they won't take your positions seriously because like you said, okay, well, it, it's not a real thing. They're always going to be there, so it's fine. But walking away puts you in a position not only for the other side to respect you, but also for you to leave the negotiation respecting yourself. I stood up for myself and now I can look at myself in the mirror and feel good. And I love the terminology, the, the phrase that you use there, under these circumstances. Because that allows them to save face if they decide, hey, I can adjust my offer. Because if you just say no and walk away, it's more difficult for them to say, wait, 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 wait. Okay, come back, come back, come back. Because they can't save face at that point. But if you say under these circumstances, then it opens the conversation because they could simply say, listen, you know what? Circumstances have changed. <laughs> and this is how they've changed. Let's, let's continue this dialogue. Absolutely. And, you know, also the important thing is people often don't know when to walk away. And that's why in your preparation, before you've even begun the negotiations, you need to set a walkaway point. And that walkaway point needs to be a hard and fast line in the sand that you draw that you know, no matter what, you are not going to cross. So, for example, if I say that I am going to enter into a negotiation and I am not going to give more than a 10% discount, and I can do all my dealing, I can do my trading, I can negotiate, 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 and somehow we finally make it down to 10%. And the client says, well, Zadine, how about 11? Let's just do 11. It's just one more, and then we can do the deal. In my mind, in many people's minds, they will say it's just 1%, right? It's just 1%. Why don't we just do it? But is it ever just 1%, Kwame? It's really not. Because, because they know when there's an extra one, there will be an extra two and an extra three and an extra four. Where does it end? They know that under a little pressure, Zabine will always give more. And I always, you know, it's, it's very easy to forget when we're negotiating these contracts that the numbers that are written on the contract or, or these numbers that we decide as our walkaway points, these percentages, these basis points, they represent real money, right? It's real money that you have in your pocket, that you sit at the table, that you can either keep with you or give away. And we forget that, that it represents real money. So it's, it's you know, I always like to give examples. If I have $5 in my wallet and you tell me, Zabine, I left my wallet at home. Can you spot me some money for lunch? I can give you $1, I can give you $2, I'd have $3 left that I can eat, but then you say, Zabine, I need $3, I'll give you $3, I can give you 4 I can give you 5 I can give you all 5 And then if you say, Zabine, can you just give me an extra $0.25? Cents? And I say, no, Kwame, I can't. And you say, it's just an extra $0.25. Cents. I don't physically have it. No matter how small the amount is, I only have $5 in my wallet, and that's all I can give. Ideally, I give you less. But if I had to give you all of it, that's all I could give. 
So when I sit at a negotiation, I look at my walkaway points, I look at the numbers in the contract, and I remember this is an actual amount of money that I am responsible for. I cannot violate this. That's brilliant. I love it. I, I really love that that example too. It makes it r- very real because, like you said, it's it's difficult for people to to conceptualize it, especially on the fly during a difficult conversation when emotions are running high and you're not thinking as clearly. That shows how important it is to prepare. And uh, so, for you listeners out there who haven't gotten your negotiation guide, remember you can get a salary negotiation guide, just general business negotiation guide, conflict resolution guide. All of those things can help you to prepare if you go to AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash guide, and there'll be a link in the description where you can get that too. But Zabine, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kwame. It's always a pleasure. Likewise. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.